Hi, everyone. I'm Tony Skaggs, Associate Program Director of the Department of Physician Assistant Studies at UT Health San Antonio, and I'd like to welcome you to the inaugural episode of TAPA Talks, an original podcast series produced by the Texas Academy of PAs. Each month, we'll discuss a wide range of topics that impact the PA profession and clinical care. My guest today is Ryan English, a supportive and palliative care PA at Baylor Scott and White Health in Dallas, adjunct faculty at UNT Health Science Center, and current president of TAPA. We're going to learn a little bit about the TAPA president. Uh, From there, we're going to dive into a discussion about PA history and our origins as a profession. This should be a great discussion. Uh, Welcome to the podcast, Ryan. Thank you. Excited to be here for our kickoff. I know. It's pretty, isn't this crazy? So uh, now, are you up in Dallas right now? Yes, I'm up in Dallas. I work in downtown in an area called Deep Elm, but I live just in the north suburbs. That's where I am right now. Oh, very cool. Could you tell us a little bit about your career journey as a PA? Yeah, this is my third career, I guess, technically. So I started doing office work in a cubicle for a mortgage title. But mostly what I did was talk on the phone to people and help manage vendors. I didn't really love that. I went to do recruiting, like retained search, which was a interesting world where, again, I'm talking to people and trying to help them find positions they like. And in the course of asking them about that, I realized there's a better fit for me. And about that time, I actually went on a mission trip to the Amazon rainforest and I helped with a medical clinic and a dental clinic. And despite seeing like, you know, the wonders of the Amazon and pink dolphins and all this crazy stuff. When I came back, the only thing I talk about was getting to help suture somebody's gums and helping with the weird medical clinic and all that fun stuff. So right. I kind of picked up the bug. And from there, it was right about the time I found out my son was on his way. I was like, I've got to I want to do something, I want to do it right now. So I figured out that the PA route was the best fit for me and dove into it, got my EMT, worked in the hospital as a patient tech, did every science course because my undergrad had nothing to do with sciences. So I took three years of leveling courses and worked overnight while I was doing that and got out and made it to school. So, you know, interesting, your journey, which is like something you hear a lot uh, especially from PAs that have been doing it for a while. It, it's it's a very unique journey, but I also think a lot of people can relate to that. What PA program did you go to? I went to the UNT Health Science Center in Fort oh, Worth, wow. where I'm adjunct faculty now. So I got to come back home to help teach. It's really fun. Been a great program. It was really fun getting to go there and commute from <laughs> from Dallas while I was a student. Nice. And what made you want to get involved in Tampa? You know, when I was looking to get in, you know, part of my fun PA journey was not having the best GPA coming out of undergrad. And mm-hmm. I, I am as a non-traditional student, you know, dealing with baggage I had from a decade or more ago. So looking for things to distinguish myself, I ended up finding out there was a TAPA conference in town. I was at UT Dallas taking prereqs and helped start the pre-PA society there. And in the course of that, found out about TAPA and went to conference in there I uh, interviewed a lot of different PAs. I brought my video camera. I was putting everybody's face saying, please tell me something about being a PA that I can use for this blog. But um, that probably also dates me saying it was a, a blog at the time. But <laughs> at conference, I was astounded at how much advocacy was discussed and what a profound impact. Like people who really don't know who we are or how we're trained or what we do, or we may not even know that much about healthcare in general, are making all the laws and regulations that affect how we can take care of our patients. Man, that is so true. It really is. It's very, that's one of the things that frustrates me, you know, how our profession, even though it's what almost it's over 50 years old, 
you know, there doesn't seem to be a great understanding amongst people outside of our profession about what we really do, you know, and how we do it. So, and, yeah. and also, I, I'm very interested, you mentioned that, that you are a non-traditional student, which is something I'm super interested in. I think that's, you know, the recruitment of non-traditional students, I think carries us a long way. So that's fantastic. What made you want to become a TAPA president? You know, I got involved really early on. As soon as I was a student, I was our class's TAPA rep. And mm -hmm. I was very aggressive in that position, I guess you could say, on how involved I wanted to be. I was already going to board meetings and talking about TAPA, promoting to my class, and had become very invested all the way through school. So when I graduated, it was a natural fit to kind of stay involved. I ended up getting appointed as the PR committee chair, and I did that for the first three years while I was out. And after doing that, I decided to run for director at large. Uh, which is a voting board member position, did that for a couple of years. And then in the process of that really felt like it was, I don't know, being president was something I wanted to try to do. So I ran for it. I, I knew that there were things that I had seen in the organization that I was really excited about. There were opportunities I saw us about to have coming up. And I thought it would be just the right time to try to jump in and get some work done. You said there were things that excited you or that, that interested you. What, what were those? You know, there were some really cool developments. I mean, some legislatively, we'd for the last several sessions made some big strides in how we're regulated in this state, but also seeing some of the more grassroots involvement. I know there was a proposed bill at one point a few sessions back that some PAs are in favor for and some weren't. And it was a fascinating discussion. The big thing that I took away from it, though, was there were a lot of PAs that were suddenly really engaged in the process that I hadn't heard from before, even being involved for several years with TAPA. And that really excited me that there are people who were out there and could recognize the importance of some of this stuff. So that was exciting. Also seeing us come out of some difficult chapters. I don't know if everybody listening knows, but TAPA probably a year before COVID had some real big internal workings that we sorted out. And after that, we did the same thing everybody else did and started dealing with the pandemic and all the big changes that took. So seeing how we navigated that, we had some excellent leadership during that time from the whole board and especially the presence at that time, uh, Evan Montez and Matt Booty and, and Eric Martinez and Jennifer Eames really built as a great foundation for me to kind of swoop in and start to work with the good stuff. <laughs> they did all the hard work for it. <laughs> so how long have you been serving right now? So I started my presidential term in July. And the way it's structured is, you know, I got elected and I started the July before as president-elect. And that is a, a voting board position. So you start to take over some duties, you add all the board meetings, you're functioning as part of the board, preparing for your year. Then in this July, I took over as president and I'll carry that all the way through June. In this coming July, I'll move into the immediate past president position, which is still an active board member, still voting, kind of focused on not just being a resource for the new president and the new board, but also helping with elections and you know our leadership pipeline and really focused on things like that at that point. Right. So you're very much uh, in contact with the current elect, the past president and so forth, and you, you work as a kind of a team to address issues and so forth? Absolutely. Yeah. We, in fact, it's a really fun group right now. We have an excellent board that has a lot of new board members on it which brings a lot of fresh perspective. And our executive leadership team, which is the core part of the board, the president, president-elect, immediate past, the vice president and the treasurer and the secretary, 
it's a lot of people to be in the core group, I guess, but <laughs> they're all fairly seasoned board members and everybody brings a lot of different perspective and personality to the table too. So it's been really nice to be surrounded by all the people I get to be with. Well, and just on that note about getting involved, I know that there's a trip to the Hill coming up pretty soon in, in February, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. February uh, 20th and 21st. Monday is President's Day. And that evening, we're going to meet and do some preparatory work and some socialization, networking, and kind of celebrate our time together. And then Tuesday, we're going to have kind of a bill briefing, and we're going to divide into teams, and we're going to go to the Capitol that Tuesday and walk the halls and meet with our representatives and meet with our senators and whoever else we can meet with and talk to them about all the things we're trying to get done so that we can take care of the patients of this great state. Yeah. And I tell you, I, I, I've never, I haven't done it for Texas. I did it once for the, with the AAPA, went to Washington. Uh, man, I, I got to tell you, that was a lot of fun. And I think anybody out there listening, just appreciate the fact that we need that kind of activity to keep us engaged and relevant. Just a huge part of our profession. So, uh, so Absolutely. You know, yeah, I'm, I'm signed up to go too. So I'm looking forward to it. Great. Oh, we're going to have fun having you there. Yeah, I think oh, if, you, if you haven't done that before, if anybody's listening, it's an amazing thing to do because you get a lot of support. You're there with teams. You don't have to be the only person always talking, but you get to really speak to what it is to be a PA and why some of these things are important. And the legislators and their staff actually want to learn this stuff. We're a resource for them. And especially if you're meeting with someone that represents you, if you're a constituent of them, they're desperate to hear from you. They want to hear from you more than they want to hear from me or our lobbyist or anybody else. They really want to hear your thoughts. So it's fun to have a way to engage in politics that isn't like some of the more painful points you see in the news. It's it's people actually trying to get some work done and uh, do some things for good. So it's it's fun and it's encouraging and it's a, it's a good time. And so it would be a good way if somebody was uh, interested in getting uh, involved, that's a good way to do it. Would there be any other way that a person could get involved in TAPA? There's a lot of great entry points. I think, of course, I'd recommend everybody to come to our conferences. We have a virtual conference earlier in February, and then next September, we're going to have our in-person conference again at Kalahari Resort in Round Rock in, I believe, September and that's a great place to at least start. You can network. You can help work with some of the conference, either being an MC or uh, helping with our pack or some of the events we have. One of the best ways, though, for people to jump in, I think, is by being on a committee. When you're on a committee, whether it's public relations or membership or finance, there's some really good opportunities for you to not be super committed where you're meeting every week and doing all this work, but you're able to meet maybe an hour or two once a month, do a little bit of work offline, but get some really critical things done for TAPA because a lot of the committee work is where kind of the rubber meets the road a little bit for what we do. You know, as a volunteer organization, there's always more work to do than there is people to do it. So when we have a good, robust committee, it really uh, makes everything go around. It's a nice way to peek in too, because you get to see how the flow of work goes and the leadership and, and all that good stuff. Yeah, I totally get that. And that speaks to me because that's what I've done. I mean, I'm somebody that kind of got a late start on the whole, you know, the importance of supporting our profession. So that's what kind of brings me here today. So just great advice. Also, before we started the podcast, you and I were talking offline. You mentioned that you have interest in the, the PA profession, specifically the PA profession in Texas. And I think that kind of speaks a little bit to what we're talking about now. But would you be willing to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I love context. I love kind of knowing how things got to be how they are now and where they came from. I enjoy 
history and things like that. So whenever I was at that first TAPA conference and learning about the legislative things we're working on, I want to say one of them, this may be inaccurate if someone's a super fact checker out there, but (laughs) I want to say one of the things we were working on was like signing either like concussion forms or school physical exam forms. And these are things that were doing in practice, but we just weren't on the form and needed to sign it. And I thought, how did it get that way? Why weren't we on the form to begin with? And I was able as a student to start a project where I was interviewing past presidents. And, you know, TAPA started in 1975. That was the year that Texas had three PA programs open. And it was UT Southwestern, UTMB in Galveston, and Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. That was also a time before the state of Texas recognized us. So in talking to the president from that time, PAs could not practice unless you were on a federal site or with a federal clinic. So they were trying to find a way to get legislation to pass so that we could actually show up and work because we were graduating people by that point. My personal anecdote that I, I like to share when I'm trying to explain to people how critical advocacy is My mother was actually one of those early graduates from UTMB. She graduated in 1978. And when she graduated, she had zero jobs that she could go do. The only one that was open at the time was in a federal prison. You know, that was not a good fit for my mom, is what she told me, which I can completely understand. She wasn't interested in doing, you know, incarcerated work and ended up instead having me show up a little bit later and just becoming a mom and never got to practice and missed out on an entire career. By the time life kind of let her readdress that, it was 15 years after she'd been in school and she's going to have to repeat everything. And she, she ended up not doing that. What's fascinating is Texas first recognized PAs a year after she graduated, 1979. Mm. So that advocacy plays a huge part in that. And there were, I'm sure, a lot of people from that time that either moved out of state or had to take weird jobs or maybe didn't even practice because there was that lag in trying to catch up. That's also a time when we got that in 1979 that there were other healthcare professions who didn't like us being here and were actively lobbying to kill our profession and not just like keep oh, us Ryan, that's not true. Come on, yeah. bro. Yeah. <laughs> It's fascinating. What? No, it blows my no mind. No way. I, you know, I, I'm, I like to think I get along with a lot of people, but I know sure. coming up, even as a patient tech and stuff, I worked with a ton of nurses and a ton of doctors and a ton of respiratory and all these other people. And everybody works together so well when we're mm-hmm. in practice, learning how competitive and difficult and even conflictual it is when you move out of the clinic and into the capital to try to regulate this stuff. So true. I mean, I think so many PAs, you know, and again, obviously it's very anecdotal, but I think the nature of our profession that we're individuals that get into a clinic, we get our responsibilities, our tasks, our duties, put our head down Mm -hmm. and just kind of press on, not really knowing what's spinning around above us. And again, I'm not trying to cast aspersions, just again, my observations, but there's definitely people out there and I don't think I'm saying anything people aren't aware of that don't have our best interest at heart. That's the reality of it. Or sometimes we're just overlooked. It's not malicious, but you know, you look at the Affordable Care Act, there was lots of things in the Affordable Care Act where PAs were left out and it was just an oversight. But sorry, that's just my two cents. Well, no, that's exactly it. There's that saying, you know, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And Mm -hmm. that, especially early on, was something we, we were really fighting to get off the menu. When we first got permission to practice by the state, 
there was a big fight to prevent us from being able to step foot inside of healthcare facilities, like nursing homes even. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the big areas that we had uh, a lot of growth initially in was, you know, we were being hired by these physician groups to help round on nursing home patients and things. And the <laughs> some of the clinical leadership in the nursing homes really would lock the doors on us and not let us in. Wow. And we had to had to go to Austin and fight that. It was it's just it's just unreal. Right. Again, yeah. most individuals unaware, especially now. I mean, it was probably much more apparent back in the late seventies, early eighties. Clearly. So, and you Absolutely. even said there was there was a. I know you and I were talking. There was an issue that happened in the eighties that's actually very interesting. Could you share some information about that? Oh yeah. It's hard to imagine someone taking this seriously now with the environment we're in and the attention we have to healthcare worker shortage. But in the 80s, there was a report that came out that said there were too many physicians and there's too many providers. And they were looking at scaling back physician training and in turn, shutting down PA training. The ramification was there's a lot of competition for people to have any position where you're you know, diagnosing, treating, prescribing. And PAs could not find work. Some of the leaders we have in Tampa right now were just graduating at that time and talk about how they would go clinic to clinic with their resume and say, could I please just work here for six months? I will work for free. I just need the experience just trying to get their foot in the door. Now, obviously, somebody re-examined the data and said, oh, we left off all these millions of people who aren't getting care because if anything, you know, there's a profound healthcare worker shortage. And on top of that, a distribution problem that the PAs really help address. I can totally see that in Texas too. It's interesting because you speak to that, but but now, 2022, always one of the top jobs in the nation is, is a physician assistant. You know, definitely opportunities out for us. It's a, what an interesting change. So. Well, that's why I like talking about, especially to some of our newer PAs or students who are in school, because they're coming into the profession at this time where we've been one of the top healthcare jobs in the top three for like a decade. You know, we're a, an amazing profession. We're in every medical specialty. We work all over the place. We'd have much more recognition now than we ever did before. The times that I run into someone who has not heard of a PA are almost non-existent. And more often when I'm telling someone who I am, they go, oh, I see a PA or my PA took care of me after my surgery, or they have some kind of anecdote or connection. So for them coming into the profession at a time like that, it's unreal to hear stories about when people actively and almost killed our profession or... Another thing from the 80s I learned, there used to be a time in Texas where if you were practicing in a clinic, you had to put up a big sign with red letters that said, be careful, you're being treated by a PA. Like it was a warning sign, like, (laughs) watch out. There's someone who's not a doctor sneaking around here treating you. Just the concept of that kind of like spiteful, weird boundary to practice that would instill fear in our patients instead of helping build trust. We're so far from that now. It's uh, it's hard to imagine. We've come a long way. That's so true. What do you think uh, some of the biggest challenges that are facing Texas PAs are today? I think there's a few key things that we run into now, and we are poised really well. We've been working for decades to build on our successes and continue to make sure that we can practice as best we can. But we have a handful of things that are still dragging us down or holding us back from being able to really work to the top of our education and our training and help the patients of this great state. I think one of them is just the bureaucracy of practice. For example, right now, 
when I go to work, I get hired at a job, I have to register my supervising physician on the Texas Medical Board website, which means I go in and I type in all the stuff. It sends my physician an email, which they can't find because it probably goes to their junk folder. When they finally find it, after we go through it a few times, they log into their side, they type in everything to confirm me. Then I get an email back. Usually we have to repeat that process because they did not check dangerous drugs because that name is hugely misleading. It doesn't make any sense. But in the state of Texas, that's how they've decided to call things that aren't controlled substances but require prescriptions. So like amoxicillin. So after we have that discussion, then I can start working. And then every month I have to write down on a piece of paper, a patient, at least one, that my supervising physician and I talked about and reviewed the case and have that somewhere to show the medical board if they ever want to audit me. Now, all of that is something that every single PA and supervising physician is supposed to go through. And there are very few of them that understand and execute those steps. So what's fascinating about that is that during COVID, the governor, uh, with a waiver, stopped that, shut it down, and said, don't worry about it. We're going to stop this tracking. We're not. You don't have to tell us who your supervising physician is. You don't have to meet monthly and write it down. Just work. Make sure you have someone you're working with and do the job. So the cool thing was that not only were there not you know riots of people objecting or piles of bodies in the streets, there was excellent pivoting that we were able to do to address some of the critical needs happening during the pandemic. You know, I've talked to several rural PAs who their supervising physician, either because of illness or death, were suddenly unavailable. Mm. And they would have had to shut down their clinic for at least a week, seeing people that they've seen for years. If they had to go through all of those steps again to re-engage specifically with a specific supervising physician and log it through all those steps. Instead, they were able to keep taking care of the patients they did and were able to connect with a physician while they did that without the bureaucratic hassle. The other thing I know for my healthcare system, like many people, when the pandemic started, we quit doing surgery. Our orthopedic PAs had nothing to do. But at that point, I was on the hospitalist team and we were swamped. We were devastated with patients trying to take care of all of them. And we were able to take those ortho PAs and pivot them into hospital medicine. And of course, we surrounded them with a lot of support. We trained them up. But because of unencumbering the administrative process that has a lot of weird legal liability, but doesn't really offer any patient protection, because we're able to get away from that, we were able to dynamically address the needs of the pandemic and, and the healthcare worker shortages. So following in on that, do you think COVID had a positive influence or changed our profession? Or did we just kind of fall back into the way we were? Or Yeah, I think going through the COVID pandemic really helped, helped us look at some of the ways that our healthcare is structured and find things that were not effective. I know I saw hospitals who were reluctant to bring in PAs to the ICU suddenly have a host of PAs and a strong APP line because they needed it. Instead of it being a turf war, it was a partnership. And we found the vital role that virtual care and telehealth played for a lot of our patients, not just because there was a pandemic and they couldn't come to the clinic, but some of them live four hours away and some of them don't need to physically be in person every single appointment. And looking at some of the you know, administrative things, not just for PAs, I mean, I know the pharmacists were proven to be able to distribute vaccines more effectively. There was a lot of people who were able to be freed up to do their work and patients really benefited from that. 
So do you think two years, five years, 10 years down the road, do you think there's any significant changes coming for our profession? I hope so. My hope is, you know, our next legislative session starts in January and we're going to be tackling a lot of this stuff. We're going to specifically bring up that COVID waiver and try to have that codified to say that we don't need to go through all these weird administrative steps to log our supervising physician. We need to modernize how we're managing that. We're going to look at Schedule 2 prescription. It doesn't make sense to have us be able to have Schedule 2 prescriptive authority delegated to us in weird limited settings. It makes a lot more sense to let the practice site just make that decision. You know, I work right now in supportive and palliative care, and almost every medication I give to a patient is Schedule 2 because I'm working with really sick patients who have found amounts of pain. And if I was working in endocrinology, I probably wouldn't want to write a bunch of fentanyl patches and morphine sulfate and things like that. And I, it wouldn't make sense for me to have that delegated to me. But in the role I'm in now, it would not only help my physicians and my practice and help free us up to be able to utilize the resources we have, but it would help my patients a lot. I just had somebody discharged today and had spent a lot of time not just dialing in the medication regimen, but really working on building rapport with this person with a sudden serious illness that was the first one in their entire life, only to have to have them send off into the wild and not see me anymore because I can do all those things in the hospital. But when I see them in clinic, I can't write for those medications. That's one of the ones. There's a few others on our legislative agenda. If you guys are listening, you're curious about that, connect with us, find us on our website, kappa.org. You can register to be part of our grassroots advocacies where you can share your stories, where some friction points you've hit or frustrations you've found. Come out to Austin in, in February with us. We'll go walk around the Capitol and tell everybody to let us work. Right on. Like I said, I will be there. So Ryan, I, I hope you don't mind. I'm going to ask you a couple other questions here. Uh, just out of curiosity, what kind of things do you like to do away from your advocacy roles and being a provider? What can you tell us about yourself? Yeah. Before I went to PA school, I did triathlons and I took a hiatus for over a decade. And I just did my first triathlon again a month ago and didn't drown. It was a really big accomplishment to not drown in an open water swim. So that was fun. Huh. My my son and I have built a wood shop in our garage. He did Cub Scouts. And when he started, we did the uh, Pinewood Derby. And I didn't know what any of the power tools were, only that I should be afraid of them and not go near them. And uh, figured out that's probably a bad thing to be exemplified in my son. So <laughs> thanks to uh, some wise friends in YouTube, we've built a wood shop and, and build all kinds of things now. And I like, you know, when I get a chance to sit down and relax, finding a nice good whiskey to, to sip on every once in a while. And uh, I'm also a huge nerd. I can talk about Star Wars probably as much as I can the PA profession. So Man, why are we not hanging out? Honestly, yeah. uh, you see behind me, I know we're on <laughs> Zoom. I don't know if you see back there, but... Uh, but I'm a, I'm a huge cyclist. Oh so. yeah. Yeah. So uh, I know, I don't know if that'll make it on the podcast or not, but I hope it does. <laughs> so, uh, so what was the distance on the uh, triathlon? This one was a sprint try, but it was the longest sprint try I ever did. We swam 500 meters open water and we biked 18 and then we did a, a 5k. My bike and my run were really good for how much I did. And I only swam once in preparation and I'm not a strong swimmer. So the, my swim time was profoundly bad. <laughs> I know. I look at those individuals that do Ironman and it's like, uh, you know, two miles, was it two mile swim? Somewhere in two mile yeah. swim. And you think, well, how bad could that be? It's, it's impossible. It's a, yeah. it's a huge swim. Back when uh, I was strong in them, I, I did one uh, Olympic length and I think we swam a mile 
And that was plenty. <laughs> are, are you done? Or are you going to keep doing them? I'm going to do some five K's until I can figure out how to practice my swimming better. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I need to not, I need to make it through a swim safely. Not <laughs> it's hard in Texas to practice swimming in Texas, you know? Yeah. So, so we're, we're coming up on a, about 30 minutes right now, Ryan. I, I'm just curious, do you have any closing thoughts or any, uh, any words to our current members or individuals that might be interested in becoming part of TAPA? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's lots of ways to plug in. I would tell you just find a committee to join or find something to work on. Even if you're not on the committee, you can always help, but we would love to have the help. And if you aren't sure you want to take that step or you work with a lot of people who aren't interested in helping out, that's okay. We're happy to do what we can, but we still need your support just at least to be a member. That's our our big ask is that every every PA in Texas should be a member because we're speaking for you and we're doing the work and it's, uh, you know, like brushing your teeth, just something you you need to do to help keep up the hygiene of the profession. And uh, if you'd like to be involved, we'd love to have you. There's lots of ways to plug in. Yeah, you bet. I just think if you're, if you're concerned about something that's, that's happened to the profession, especially at a PA political level, and you're not a member, then whose fault is that really, right? Well, I always point to, you know, France used to have a profession that was like ours, and they got legislated out of existence because they didn't have strong enough advocacy. You know, we're in such a great place, and we do so much good work. It's hard to imagine that that could happen. But if you don't keep moving forward, you will slip backwards. And we got to yeah. we got to all band together to do that. Yeah, we do have a pretty robust profession in the United States, but you don't have to look too far. Look, in, look at Canada, look at the UK. Uh, they're, they're always two steps forward and one step back. So we definitely need that advocacy. That's for sure. So absolutely. Thanks for joining us, Ryan. It's been a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. And I'm definitely going to see you uh, in Austin in February. And thanks to everyone for listening to us in this inaugural episode of Tapa Talks. You can go ahead and join us each month as we take a look at the professional lives of those that focus on improving the health of all Texans. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you'd like more information about the Texas Academy of PAs, again, be sure to visit us online at tapa.org. We look forward to seeing you next time.